You look um, like you're in some sort of writer's retreat cabin. <laughs> Do you, oh my god, I would kill to be on a retreat. <laughs> you're looking very gray and like it's very glowy and frosted looking. Because Ellie's got a shit laptop now. Okay, can you can you just like rub the camera a little bit? <laughs> I don't think it's that. I think it's just quality. We've gone from a Mac to a PC. Oh, mm. you can tell. Yeah. <laughs> We're both looking worse than ever, so it's probably for the best that the I camera's there. I actually much prefer the PC camera because it's I think well it's quality. much more forgiving. <laughs> ah, yes, it gives yeah. you that sort of glamour glow. No one can tell exactly, yeah. what's going on. Well, you've got actually nice skin. Uh, we've got camera face. <laughs> Some of us nice skin. <laughs> But thank you. You guys are always color coordinated whenever you come on. I don't know if it's just because living together, you guys end up dressing. We, we only wear we only wear dark colors, grays, <laughs> blacks, whites. That's it. No, this red malarkey. What's this, Nora? Hey, there's gray in there, but you know, yes. it's a little. <laughs> um, Happy New Year, by the way. Happy New Year. Happy holidays. Maybe the best year of our lives, I'm sure. It snowed. That was it nice. No, that was fun. I enjoyed that. That was nice. Yesterday, Ellie was watching it snow. Like she'd never seen snow before. She was like a five-year-old. It was it was really magical. And then this morning, when she realised it was icy, she thought the snow was the worst thing in the world and wouldn't stop moaning about it. Yeah, I mean that's the thing with snow that it's really fun when it snows right away, and then afterwards you're like, fuck. Yeah. And then if you drive, <laughs> which we have not braved yet. No, okay. I haven't got the guts. Do you guys have a car? No. You do? I didn't realize you had a car. So you can drive over, right? <laughs> to visit. <laughs> I, I have a car, but I am the world's least confident driver. So I will go like one of three routes. <laughs> but you have your license, don't you, Sean? Yeah, but I haven't driven since I moved to London. Like, okay. So I need to have like, a refresh lesson. I'll go to Sainsbury's or down the M4, the one way I know on the motorway home, and that's it. <laughs> well, as no one's going to be wanting to take public transport really i think you should take it back out that driver's license sean and you know brush up we'll see i, I was planning on having refresh lessons this year but then the pandemic just keeps on trucking <laughs> I... can't ellie give you refresher lessons I every time I do something in a car i am not convinced that it is the right thing like they've given me a license but i honestly don't think they should have well, Tom, do you know how to drive? It's like you're going out of your way to cause domestic dispute. <laughs> I know. I'm an instigator at heart, why, you know. Why doesn't Ellie give driving lessons? Come on. <laughs> it's, not a good, it's not a good look. Um, hello. Hi. Hello, nice to see you. Back in the old place, I see. Uh, yeah, nice to be here. Where are you? Yeah, I almost got the time wrong. That's okay. I'm, I'm at home in London. Okay. How's winter doing? In winter, proper um, winter. Yeah, winter, winter was really excited by snow. Um, I'm. I realised I'm feeling the after effects because I feel like when I saw snow, I was like, "Oh, great! This probably means I don't need to go into the office tomorrow." And then it kind of hit me that, of course, I didn't have to go into the office. But I still feel like a snow day for some reason. Yeah, it was um, exciting to have something different for the first time about seven months. Yeah, and people were it probably was. outside. Winter went, winter went mad. Uh, everyone is like throwing snowballs at each other. Adults, not children. Adults. <laughs> Losers. 
you, you say that with such derision, as though as though you've never seen adults throwing you next you're gonna tell me you've never built an igloo. I have. My dad and I, as a kid, built the like height size mm-hmm. igloo. We took recycling bins and we filled them and created blocks and then piled them up and made an igloo. Oh, that's that's impressive. I think we, we made blocks for the spade. Yeah, we we would have like feet, like you know, like three feet of snow. Yeah. Yeah. Ellie's mum lives out in, out in the states now, and she sent us a video end of last year and she was like wading through like waist high snow to get to like the car to go to work it was insane yep that sounds about wow. right <laughs> anything else let's just talk about good things that are happening and he started a new job oh yes congratulations on the promotion new job all the fanciness no no i quit my i quit mine i don't have one. Oh. you have an exciting new one mm. oh that's exciting too right not as exciting as yours. Are you going to something Promotion else or are you just much quit because you're like, no, I've had enough? Yeah, I quit because I've had enough. But yeah. I've got six months to figure it out. So, yeah, oh. Oh, that's nice. But it's nice. It's a weight off my shoulders. So I'm feeling vaguely optimistic about 2021. Good. What, what's the promotion? Oh, I moved. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it's good so far. You've been talking about sex toys all day. Something nobody will. I genuinely have. There's a lot of search around it. Uh, do you bring stuff home? <laughs> no. I said I need um, a male whoa, whoa, writer. Whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> <laughs> um, and you, you kindly volunteered your services, didn't you? Yeah. For free. For free. It was like, you don't even have to pay me a fee. Yeah. I'll just write it for you. And I politely declined. Um, are we still talking about reviewing sex toys? We yeah. are. Have I, have I lost the link somewhere? No, we are. <laughs> oh, we are. Oh, okay, good. No, okay. basically I work, um, I'd like heading up the shopping channel. So like anything people will buy, we have to cover. That's and great. that makes a lot of money for a lot of websites. So, Well, it's a lot of people alone, not dating. Mm-hmm. So good for the sex toy industry. Yeah. Valentine's Day sales, apparently. Oh, Yeah. <laughs> You have you ever watched, and I would recommend to go on YouTube if you haven't, Talk Sex with Sue. It was a Canadian call-in show in like the 90s and early 2000s, and she was a registered nurse, and she did this call-in show. She's like, she was like in her 70s and 80s, and people would call in to ask for like sex advice, and she would review sex toys. Sue. Talk sex with Sue. It was so good. We used to like sneakily watch it late night as kids. I've never heard of it. Have a week off, I'll watch it. <laughs> week off, he'll um, he'll binge it and give us his review. Is it a book as well? Could we read Sue's book? No, can I? I don't. I, she might have done a book. I'm not, I'm not aware of it. Next book club sold. <laughs> Boom. But she had some sort of like rating system for sex toys. I think it was like chili peppers or something for like the hotness level of the sex toy. Nice, nice. That's good. Like, um, good like forward, not forward thinking, but like progressive in the 90s, no? That's quite like bold for a 70-year-old. Yeah, she was amazing. It was just like kind of um, shocking and inspiring to see someone who looked like your grandmother reviewing sex. <laughs> <laughs> this, this book club's taken a really strange turn already. Yeah. I mean, I think I should leave this into introduction for people to hear about. This is important <laughs> to have open and frank discussions about your sexual health. 
just ask Sue. Yeah, exactly. Ask Sue. She would say yes. I don't think Sue's still alive. I, about to say, I assume Sue's Aww. probably dead now, sadly. Yes. Um, so we... Although I love the idea of someone who's over 100 living <laughs> sex toys. I mean, you still have a libido, no matter what age. Do you? Do you? Do your reviews for the independent? No, because she's not a man. I need a man. No, I need a man. Who do you know any men that you can get to do this? No, this is why we were talking about it because there's quite a few women who write about them, like, and it's like fine, but we don't know. She's that desperate, but still said no to me, so that's hurtful. There's an interesting stigma around male sex toys. Yeah. Uh, but there isn't for there isn't around females. I even toys. googled it and I looked at like what other websites have and like on like GQ and Esquire they're just written by like Esquire editors and like no one wants to put their name on it. Whereas no, on like yeah, Cosmo absolutely. it's like you know Charlotte Smith or whatever like they all bylined. So it's interesting. Uh, I'm trying to think actually interestingly do you in the like drag scene there's a lot of stuff talking about like male sexual health and there's a few like uk drag queens who do like discuss the subject matter and i don't know if that might be a community that you could like reach out to i think the gay community is probably better placed to discuss a lot of these things just because they're so much more open around it i feel like Mm -hmm. straight guys are like no as a sweeping generalization yeah but yeah, that sounds really cool. I, I look forward to seeing... <laughs> I promise piece. this isn't like the basis of my job. This is just one piece that Sean thinks is hilarious. No, I see. I'm now thinking about, you know, proper investigative journalism. Yeah. But you're like, really? It's like, oh, God, what's that movie about the uh, Chicago Tribune? And... Um, oh, um... Spotlight. <laughs> yeah, so I've now got this vision of like a, a scene from Spotlight, except it's about uncovering the people who really reviewed male sex toys. Oh my gosh, yep. that'd be great. Oh, there's, um, wait, who's, Ellie, have you watched Bling Empire yet? No. Okay, there's a, a thing, there's a scene with a male sex toy in Bling Empire, this new reality show. For okay, those maybe that could be our newsy it. hook for the story. Yeah. That's very useful. Yeah, there's a whole episode about it. And then the guys kind of make some jokes about this male sex toy that they find in a woman's house. I think people people who are watching reality TV will know what I'm talking about. <laughs> Normally that's me. I just haven't watched that one yet. It's really good. But speaking of something really good and interesting, the white tiger. Welcome to book club. <laughs> Seamless. Seamless. You can see why Nora's the host. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. Welcome to Book Club 2021 edition, which looking at the films coming out this year, and I, maybe it's films coming out at the beginning of the year versus the end of the year, because the end of the year always feels like kind of the slightly more trashy, like holiday films, whereas the beginning of the year, you kind of get a little more interesting indie films. So I'm kind of glad to start with this, which is a little more international, a little more diverse and interesting so we have read and potentially read looking at tom and watched the white tiger tom is aware that it's a book yeah <laughs> is he oh it's a book <laughs> oh i wonder what that's like uh we the white tiger by aravind adiga uh and i apologize to listeners 
if I butcher any names, I'm going to try my best. It was published in 2008, and it was a debut novel, which kind of mind-blowing that it came out, and then it won the Man Booker Prize right away. The author, Adike, was born in Chennai uh, to quite well-to-do family, actually, which is kind of interesting parallel to the book. And he eventually immigrated to Australia and then went on to study at Oxford. And he has published three books since The White Tiger, Between the Assassinations, Last Man in Tower, and Selection Day. Ellie and Sean, did you read the book first and then watch the movie? Yeah, I, I always end up doing that. I think I like the idea of watching the film first and then reading the book. But Also, this film wasn't out until two days ago. Yeah, which didn't. <laughs> yeah, I always find it easier to read the book first. Yeah. Well, we're really on top of things. You know, this is a fresh film, so it feels good. Yeah. <laughs> I'm assuming just the film? The film, I hope. Um, yes, yes, ma'am. <laughs> okay. Are you aware of the book? I, I am aware of the book, but it's... Um, yeah, I, I'm not entirely sure why I didn't read it. I usually do read the book a shortlist. Yeah. I remember when I worked in bookshops, I always um, would try and read them because you do get... Uh, interesting selection. Well, you didn't win it. Was it 2015? Sorry. 2008. 2008 was it? Okay. 2008 was it? Okay. I didn't realize it was quite that interesting. That's, that's, uh, I, I would have pegged it for more recent having watched the film, but um, yeah, interesting. Also, to note, and we'll talk about this later, that the director went to, I think he, it was that he went to school with Adiga or they, they had some sort of education where they were, were together. Oh, that's interesting. So that kind of gives you the connection of how the film came about. So to discuss the book, it was, it's written as a very long email. I kind of, no wonder he didn't read it <laughs> from our protagonist, Balaram Halway to the Chinese premier who's coming to uh, visit Bangalore where he lives. The book is broken up into, I think it's six or seven days and each section is sort of a section of the day when he is writing uh, that portion of the email. And Balaram is writing out his life story about becoming an entrepreneur. The first night starts out, he's writing, so he's writing his life story and he wants to tell him the truth about India. He describes himself based on a police wanted poster that's been issued for his arrest. And this arrest is for an act of entrepreneurship. He tells the story of how he was originally called Muna, which means boy, because his parents never bothered to name him. And he only got the name Balram because of his teacher. He grew up in Laxman, which is a, which he describes as the darkness, which is meant to represent the poverty of India. And it's a poor rural village. And when he's quite young, his mother dies. And you have this scene where his family has to carry her to the funeral fire and he faints at the scene of seeing her body burned, as most people would, you know, be quite upset by that. And the town and his family live at the mercy of their corrupt landlords who are called the water buffalo, the raven, the stork, and the wild boar. His father is a rickshaw driver and he desires for his son to get an education and live like a man. At one point in showing his academic promise when a school inspector visits, they comment about how he's a white tiger, which 
where you could get the name of the book. Unfortunately, though, his grandmother, Kusum, has taken a loan out for his cousin's wedding. And to pay this back, they forced Balram to drop out of school and work in the tea shop. He reveals that he came to visit the town one last time as an adult with his employers at the time, with who are called Mr. Ashuk and his wife, Pinky Madam. He slits Ashuk's throat eight months later, which is how he ends that section. Good cliffhanger. The second night, he talks about how he learned his best ideas from Mr. Ashuk and his family and still thinks of them with some affection. His adult education came from always listening to conversations. He first met Ashuk Danbad in Danbad, where he moves to after his father dies of tuberculosis. He and his brother has taken him to, had taken him to hospitals, but there weren't any doctors there because the doctors had abandoned the hospitals that are meant for the poor communities. So they must just sit with his father as he dies, as they're holding him. It's kind of quite intense scene. Both he and his brother are working in a tea shop there. He overhears someone talking about how much drivers make. So he goes to his grandmother and convinces her to give him money to learn to drive. He eventually is able to get lessons from a driver. And then he manages to sort of knock door to door at all these various rich houses. And he finds the house of the stork from his town. And he convinces them to give him the chance chance to be the second driver who drives around Mr. Ashuk. He then shares a room with Ram Pashad, the first driver. Balram makes sure to continue to overhear the family conversations. Ashuk has Balram take him and Pinky to visit Laksam later on. The fourth morning, he tells the story of how while he was working in the tea shop, the owner sold all the staff's votes to the great socialist party which kind of sets up the background of the political system at the time. The Great Socialist Party is meant to be the party of the people, but is completely corrupt. Back to the Storks family in Donbad, the Great Socialist leader demands the family pay a large sum of money. So Ashok and Pinky decide they must go to Delhi to try and find a way to protect the family's business. Originally, the first driver is supposed to take them, but ever the opportunist, Balram follows him and discovers he's Muslim. He threatens to expose him. He quits, and this allows Balram to go to Delhi. The fourth night, because Pinky Madam misses America, Mr. Ashuk has them get an apartment in the most American neighborhood of Delhi, Gogan. He takes them to a shopping mall and meets some of the other drivers, particularly a man he calls. Now, does anyone know how to say this? Bit Bitigo lips? How do you call this disease? The oh, vitiligo? vitiligo, yeah. Vitiligo. He calls him Vitiligo Lips. And in return, he calls Balram Country Mouse. He introduces him to the ways of Delhi. He's kind of sort of the catalyst for his corruption, I suppose, a little bit. And Balram drives Ashok around as he must go to bribe ministers. Balram starts to transform himself, stopping chewing pan, brushing his teeth, buying better clothes. The evening, sort of the climax of the book, the evening of, well, one of them, the evening of Pinky's birthday, Balram dresses up as a Maharaj and takes them out. Completely drunk, Pinky insists on driving. While distracted, she runs over a child. The mongoose, Ashok's brother, arrives the next morning, makes Balram sign a paper saying that it was he who ran over the child. The fifth night, 
He's eventually called back upstairs later on and is told that no one saw anything, so he won't have to face charges. A few days later, Pinky, who's completely distraught by the situation, wakes Balram up and makes him drive her to the airport. She gives him money before going back to the States. Ashok is furious with Balram, but Balram stays and takes care of the depressed Ashok, and the mongoose then comes back to help Ashok as well. The sixth morning. After Pinky leaves, Ashok starts to party more and get back together with his old lover. Ashok goes further into the underbelly of Delhi, and a minister he bribes convinces him to go to sleep with, uh, sleep with the Ukrainian prostitute. The sixth evening. Balaram tries to find himself a similar prostitute. He uses all his money, but is disappointed. He also asks the other driver on how to cheat his master and eventually starts to figure out ways to get more money. One day, Ashok comes down with a red bag, which Balaram finds is full of money to bribe ministers so that they don't have to pay income tax. To surprise, he finds his young cousin, Dharam, in his room the next day. His grandmother has sent him to him to take care of. One day, he takes Dharam to the zoo where they see a white tiger and he faints again. He knows that Ashok is going to take out 700,000 rupees to bribe a minister, so he makes a plan. When he's driving, he pulls over and says he has something wrong with the car. He has Ashok come out to help and then beats him and slits his throat with a broken bottle. He goes back to get Dharam and they flee. The seventh night, eventually he manages to settle in Bangalore, bringing us back to the beginning of the email. Through the surge of the outsourcing in the city, he decides to start a taxi service. He bribes the local police to get rid of some of his competition. He creates the White Tiger Drivers. He remains, he renames himself Ashok Sharma and becomes a success. He then talks about a recent incident where one of his drivers kills a boy on a bicycle. He takes responsibility for the accident, but having already bribed the police, they don't charge him. He gives the family money and offers to take their other son as a driver. And those are the main events of the book. Sorry, that was quite a lot to get through. <laughs> now, Tom, you know what happened in the book. What do you think, like, hearing me give you that very long summary, does it sound interesting to you? Would you read it? Uh, it's a lot easier for me just to listen to the summary. Okay, then read the book. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. You know, listen to me talk for five minutes rather than spending a few hours reading. But, uh, but I guess a number of the questions that I had about the film probably would be answered in the book. Yeah, I mean, it's obviously, there's a lot more flesh to the book. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's, there's a lot of stuff that I felt was introduced and then disappeared, which I imagine in the book probably didn't happen. Yeah, and there's certain things that I didn't even mention that are quite, I don't know, just little things that I really enjoyed in the book, but aren't sort of the main points of it really. But generally, I really enjoyed the book. I mean, I kind of breezed through it in two days. I don't know how you felt reading it. I had a similar experience with it, yeah. A couple of, a couple of days commuting, I was reading it. And yeah, I, I enjoyed, I really enjoyed it. Um, I thought your summary was, was really good. Uh, <laughs> um, but like, I don't think it, um, it's hard to get across that, like, although like, it's full of like, quite horrific events, um, and it's quite bleak in places. It is funny. I think the movie does a good job of kind of showing that, but it is quite comedic throughout the book, I thought. It felt 
um, tonally, I, tonally, I imagined the book would be very similar to Salman Rushdie or Ben Okri in, in terms of- no, I don't think so at all, but okay. No, okay. I mean, I haven't read it, but that sort of sense of, you know, on the one hand, sort of political corruption, underclass, in the mud, um, it's all quite grim, but at the same time, finding humour, finding colour and life and, you know. I, that's how I imagine the book. Yeah, there is, there's sort of, not, I, I think silly is the wrong word, but a kind of irony to everything that I like to think he's aware of, because obviously in the book and similar in the film that we'll talk about of coming around from the accident that his masters um, were, had done and then him having to deal with his accident that his someone who worked for him and then him dealing with that and being stuck in this cycle and kind of at one point he literally is, has a laughing fit about how insane it all is hmm. okay i see it from the film perspective i didn't really read it in that way yeah and and there's lots of like little scenes that i love in the book that um there's a bit, because he talks about all the, the poets that he loves and they, he keeps having this line, you know, there's the four only things you need to read are these four poets and, but the fourth one, I can't remember its name. And he keeps saying over again, he's like, oh, I have to do Google later on. Like these sort of lines where he's brushing off things. Because it's, it's kind of, it's really, you feel the grittiness and the grossness and that everyone's kind of sutter, covered in soot and grime in these really poor communities, but also he can laugh a little bit or he's kind, he's has a humor to his personality at the same time when you're literally in the shit. <laughs> well, you would need it though, wouldn't you? I mean, if the book was just un unflinchingly grim, mm -hmm. it, it, would, it would get very wearing, I imagine. Yeah, and I think it puts them in, um, like a really good kind of stark contrast when you have the moments of violence or like horrific events that offset with the comedy almost makes them feel worse because of it um and i think that that, that works in the book really, really really well i think actually what did you think reading in ellie yeah no i agree that's why i haven't chimed in like i just yeah i agree that it was surprisingly humorous like i hadn't really heard of the book or sort of i didn't have any context for it um and i was pleasantly surprised like i really enjoyed reading it yeah, I, the only thing that I wish they'd explained that they didn't explain in the book or the movie, why was her name Pinky? <laughs> I do not know. <laughs> I couldn't ever work out if it was like a nickname or if that was actually like her given name. Mm -hmm. She was born in India and, and that I would think maybe she adopted the Pinky name when she moved to the States, but because Pinky, I've never heard of it being an Indian name, but I guess I don't know enough about Yeah, Indian I don't culture. know enough context. Uh, uh, I, I, uh, okay, um, possibly this is my slight misunderstanding of, of Indian culture, but I read it as like an honorific, not an honorific, but like an, an English nickname. Okay. Um, big, big, slightly because of it being a class overtone to, to the British. Yeah, nickname. yeah, maybe. Yeah. I assumed it was just a familial nickname. And I specifically appreciate, I suppose, in 
I feel like in the book, it's less forgiving about the ruling class, which we'll talk about in the film as well, that I don't find Pinky or Ashok really redeeming at all because you have the whole section of the book where Ashok is sort of clubbing and partying and he sleeps with this prostitute and then he gets back together with his ex and having sex in front of um, Balram and not really, I mean, he like kind of cares but doesn't care enough to actually do anything. Well, that's it though, isn't it? It's, it's the, the totally ineffectual pseudo liberalism of a ruling class that the children can afford to put on these airs of like, oh no, we're all people. Like, let's treat the slaves like people. Except when it comes down to it, you're not going Because to. you would have to give um, up your power or a portion of your power yeah, to do so. And, and that's, the, that's the sort of ingrained, um, you know, the, the ingrained cynicism of the caste system that sort of per permeates the whole thing. Yeah, I mean, you have the line where he's in the car and they ask him if he's low or high class, when in theory, the caste system doesn't exist in India anymore. But, you know, you have this group of people who it still does matter to. And it's the wealthy, ironically, who are the ones who care the most about ca caste. Oh, for sure, because it benefits them the most. Yeah. Um, but I guess, you know, I... I read the whole thing at the end, the, um, you know, the, the sort of mirroring of the driver running over the child. I didn't see that as him uh, seeing himself as being, I didn't see it as a redeeming thing. I didn't see it as, as a punishment thing. I saw it as like a perpetration of, you know, a per perpetuation of the system. It's just, he's, he's smarter than they are. So he's doing it right. It's all to his benefit. It's not that he's doing it because it's the right thing to do. It's because it gives him power. It gives him power over this family, this person, everything else. Um, and it's a way of exercising the power that he has over the police. What do you think of the idea of it being told through the lens of this, him writing it as an entrepreneur to another entrepreneur to educate them in this sort of lengthy email as a, I suppose, a method of delivery? I mean, I liked, I liked the way it gives you, you know, that slight humorous, you know, tonality to it. The fact that he's writing an email to the president of China. <laughs> the Chinese premier, um, yeah. And that he's calling him an entrepreneur and he's saying, you know, one entrepreneur to another. It is a very, uh, it's sort of an immediately recognisable way of looking at the world. You know, it reminded me of, weirdly not the first conversation I've had this week about the engineer in Miss Saigon mm -hmm. you know, but it's it's like hey business is business regardless of what what culture you're in so you'll understand me because business is universal and I thought that gave you an immediate insight into his character but then I got very confused at the end I didn't really understand what the coda was where when he goes and basically runs up to the Chinese prime minister. We'll talk about that because that doesn't happen in the book. And I, 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 I found that all very confusing. I wasn't quite sure what it was supposed to, to achieve. Yeah. Um, and I think because it's an email or, you know, him writing to another person, it adds this 
very casual conversational tone to the writing, which as a reader is a reason why I felt like it was such an easy book to kind of really sink your teeth into and made it such an easy read, really. A lot of the humour and it came from for me as well, just because of the familiarity that he speak, he addresses like you say, the premier of China with, he's like, he talks to him like it's like a guy down the pub that he's like sharing his business partner. Um, so I think, yeah, that's where a lot of the kind of light relief came from, I think. This kind of, like, not farcical, but like this totally inflated sense of importance. And like, this man doesn't have, you know, thousands of emails sent to him every week that he never reads. And he's like, he feels like so certain he's going to read it. And he's like, you know, we're entrepreneurs, we've got to stick together. And I, I kind of love that delusion. <laughs> I'm also wondering, where did he get his email? Is it like on the website? I don't know. Like, or maybe it's like his team, like, you know, .gov, whatever yeah, it is. Exactly. <laughs> I have to say, if the novel was written as a series of emails, then in 2008, that's exactly why I didn't read it. I was kind of aware of the book, but I did not know that about the book. And I don't even think it doesn't say that on, it doesn't say that on the blurb about the book, really. I might have read it somewhere. My, my inbuilt literary snobbery in 2008 would have meant that I wouldn't have read it on that basis. Now, now I would have a different approach. It's, it's quite amazing, because if you like just trying to write a summary about it like drawing out like the pinnacle scenes of his life you know his he witnesses his mother dying quite young and being her body burned then you know forced out of school into working quite young then having to hold his father as he dies and but he keeps you know you continually have these moments of entrepreneurship i is what he calls it but you know survival of hustling like refusing his place that his family deems he has in society and there's all these little scenes throughout the story that allow for you to kind of digest I think this the real awfulness of his life and for him as well that he isn't completely destroyed because I think so easily like his brother because of how difficult it has been in their growing up that you can let it destroy you and just kind of follow along sort of like a zombie almost. You I don't know if it's in the book, but the stuff that I really enjoyed in the film were the moments where he was really struggling to break this system of behavior that had been ingrained into it. Like it wasn't as simple as just going, these people are stupid. I'm going to steal from them. Go and make a business. But it was it was like a really like all of the sort of cultural baggage and structure that that enables you know the caste system and everything else was making it really difficult internally for him to make those decisions. And those were the bits of his characterization in the film I really liked. Like he was carrying it around with him. It wasn't just something he'd left behind. He talks about doesn't he directly that whole kind of um, chicken coop setup where. They, they could be handed a bag full of 700,000 rupees and they know that this kind of ingrained kind of servitude means they're going to be there when they when they come back. Um, and yeah, he spends the whole film trying to kind of force his way out of there. Like any, any moment building up to the end where he does do something 
for himself or that goes against that, he almost immediately punishes himself or do some does something to try and redeem himself in his kind of master's eyes. Yeah, the, the need for him to ingratiate himself with his masters and all of that stuff, I felt really, that was really human and understandable. Mm. The number of times he looks at that bag and then backs away, mm. the whole, whole concept is just, you know, just doesn't make any quite logical sense within the chicken coop mentality. Yeah. Um, and I think, I think if you don't, I think if you didn't have any of that, it would be quite difficult to really understand the character as anything except very... Um, well, I, I mean, I don't know if he's just looking at his brother going, well, you're stupid because you stayed where you are. I'm smart because I've gone somewhere else. And uh, that's that's the level of the narrative. It'd be very uninteresting. Mm. But it also but shows it, that you you can go either way when you've dealt with how they were brought up and what they went through. It is kind of you either have the choice to like, you know, fall or, you know, succeed, you know, just fall in line or not based on that experience. And I think the book is really good at having these, you know, tiny points of him pushing back. And it's very incremental. It isn't like one, you know, I'm going to fuck up the world sort of situation. It's kind of tiny little things he does to resist. Like, you know, his... Yeah, but, it, but it's all in the game. It's like every step he goes up, he's just moving to a different rank, a level of the, how society works. Mm -hmm. Even when he starts... Um, faking mechanics bills to get more money out from his employer he says i just learned what everybody else did and it's like it's, it's all within the same system it all actually is part of the whole thing until the pivotal moment where he murders his boss yeah. which is like obviously such a shocking thing that then that finally throws him outside of the structure but otherwise all the way through it's like he's not actually escaped at any point and, and arguably, you could make you could make the argument that at the end he doesn't escape; he becomes a, a perpetration of the system in a different way. And I think also it's it's the argument that you want to change the world, but you also kind of have to play ball with the world that already exists, or it will completely reject you. So he's it's whether or not you agree, obviously, but he's in the system and the system's accepting him, but he's also trying to make tiny changes at the same time and whether that's the, you know, the means justify the ends of that and will those tiny, you know, actions that he make, make a difference long-term and how he treats his employees and how he deals with um, like the accident at the end being different from how his superiors would have dealt with those situations and how he was treated. But I, but I, I, you know, I think that whole thing with him dealing at the end is like, you know, they, they break the social contract they have with him by the way that they treat him. It justifies in the logic of the narrative, what he then does. Not, therefore, he is not going to allow himself to be in the same position. Therefore, he is going to maintain that social contract by taking care of the driver and his and, and the, the dead guy's family. Do you have any other general comments that you want to make about the book, Ellie, Tron? No, I don't think so. I read it quite a while ago, so I'm struggling to... But it's because, obviously, we've watched the film as well. I'm struggling to remember what's book and what's film. Yeah, I mean, there's lots of little moments that are different. 
rather than the big moments. They have the, the big story is the same. There's just little filler things that get, of what get you to those moments. That yeah, are yeah. The, the the movie is basically the entire A plot from the book. Yeah, and like the B plot basically, whereas the book has like a C, D, and E plot, which are like small mm-hmm. kind of moments or things that run through it. Yeah, I think um, like the mother, the mother's death is compressed into the father's death. His um the 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 woman who his the is his boss's lover after his wife isn't there. Yeah, you skip all of that. They change a little bit about the political system, which I want to talk to once I've um done the summary of the film. Uh, you know, I think certain. I think the some of the main characters are slightly more redeeming than the book portrays them. Yeah, I would agree with that. Um, you know it's a little more glossy <laughs> in general than the book it definitely it's more grimy in the description of various events uh, like uh, the event in the film when we get to it about the them him shitting with the other guy in and when they're laughing at each other is a much bigger scene I felt and I, I really the impact of it in the book is quite I think momentous for me anyway so the white tiger film it came out on the 22nd of this month on Netflix it was adapted and directed by Ramin Barani he is an American Iranian director he's done he's done quite a few things a lot of like really well-regarded shorts and indie films. He did Fahrenheit 451, Pushcart Man, 99 Homes. It's a quite successful director. It stars Ardash Gurav, who plays Balram. He's been in quite a few interesting um, shows and things at the moment. My name is Khan, Die Trying, Layla, Hostel Days. And then everyone else is going through people's IMDb lists. Like they're quite successful Bollywood actors. I'm not as familiar with Bollywood films, so I wasn't sure, but they seem to be quite well regarded. I mean, the biggest one, and I think, I feel like her casting was definitely to, you know, get people to pay attention, was Priyanka Chopra, who plays Pinky. Priyanka Chopra Jonas. Yes, Priyanka Chopra Jonas. Um, No. Wait, you didn't know that? No. Married to a Jonas brother. When did that Ages happen? Ages ago. Oh. Don't they have a baby as well? I don't think they have a baby. I think Sophie Turner's the one that's had the baby. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Tom has left the chat. Uh, so, <laughs> sorry to disappoint I'm, I'm, you. I'm deeply upset. <laughs> so, and then you have Raj Kumar, who plays... Raj Kumar Rao plays Ashok. Mahish Mandrikar plays the stork. Nanish Nia plays the other driver. Then Viljay Mura plays Mongoose. It's produced by Array Filmworks, which is Ava DuVernay's film company. And looking them up, they do some really, they will, they help produce some really cool films. Lava Media, Netflix, and Nehru's Films. We opened in Delhi in 2007, which... I guess the timeline and everything, I don't think they specifically say dates in the book. No, I don't record anything, no. It it feels like it's presented as present day as of when the book's being kind of 
written and released. Yeah. So. So sorry, I don't don't mean to interrupt the flow. I've just been on Priyanka Chopra's Wikipedia. Oh no. She is also referred to as Picky Chops, a nickname given to her by her co-stars on the set of Bluffmaster in 2005. So there you go. There we go. Piggy, Pinky. I guess. <laughs> so differently already is that it opens with the couple um, driving the car really fast, being drunk, and we can tell that there's a, the foreshadowing of the accident. And you see Balram in the back wearing his turban and then they quite obviously hit a, a child. And for me already, I was like, okay, this is very glossy. Like there's a smooth filter to this uh, versus the book. And then he starts sort of telling the story of what's happened by reading this letter out that he's writing. And we see flashes of the gods in the background and he mentions it in the book about, I think it's the 39 million gods that you can pray to. And we see on the news about the Chinese premier coming to in well, Bangalore. And then we are, so we're in Bangalore in 2010 and he's walking through his offices. So also this is, it's revealing things a little more quickly because you only have two hours that we, see him in his offices and we see his company that he has and the cars. So we know that he has this taxi service. And we then go back to his town and we see the water buffalo outside of his house. And I don't know, I felt like in the movie, they seem a little more successful, his family. Like obviously they're still poor, but they have multiple water buffaloes. It's not just one, like in the book. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I mean, that there is there is that. It still looks like a pretty shit place to live. <laughs> more than one water buffalo. So yeah, yeah, they're rolling in it. So you have Granny Kusan and his brother Kishan, and then meet his father, who's a rickshaw puller. We see his village, and you see him as a boy walking through the village, Laksham, and he talks about the darkness as the description of. How, where he grows up and then you see the police poster for him and he go, him going to school and then we see the great socialist in the background who's a woman which I I don't know if they actually say in the book that the great socialist is a man and maybe it's my fault for assuming that it would be I can't remember if they specify now me neither I'll do a quick it wasn't noticeable sense. if they did. I feel like if it was a woman, it might have stuck out to me more. But again, maybe that was just me being yeah. biased. And also to note in the film, and I think this is obviously important to some sort of authenticity, is that you switch back and forth between Hindi and English quite a lot. Mm. And I, I actually quite love the scene where you see him playing with his father because you have that in the book as well where he loves to play with his father's body. Yes, I remember him talking about it this in the book. And he loves his favorite part of the body is like just below the neck where your spine starts. And he used to like to play with his father's pressure points and feel all the knots and muscles from him driving the rickshaw which is really beautifully described in the book. And I appreciated the nod to it in the film. 
Um, he is the great socialist. Oh, okay. Is is only referenced once by the looks of it. Yeah, right at the start. Okay. So I wasn't just reading into him being a man. No. I don't think that, I mean, I think that's fine that they change They do gender. the exact same scene in the book as they do in the movie where his teacher shows Baram a photograph and says, who is this? Okay. And Baram says, he's the great socialist and okay. goes into like, what is messages? There we go. So we then meet the stork and the mongoose taking money from the villagers as, you know, sort of mobsters, landlords, whatever you want to call it. And eventually he really enjoys school and does well in it, but he's forced to work in the tea shop um, by his family. And you have the same scene. And I don't know if the delivery works for me as well, but of how his brother says, you know, of him breaking the coal and say, imagine it's my skull, you cracking open the coal. Mm -hmm. And I felt in the book, there's a little more tragedy to that line, but maybe because I'd already read it, it didn't feel as tense for me. And his father's sick and he and his brother um, take him to the hospital where he stays. Actually, no, maybe I think it might've been only him in the film and he stays with him in the hospital till he dies. And then his funeral is essentially his mother's funeral in the book where he's taken to the funeral fire and he watches sort of his father's toes curling as the flames are eating him up and he Oh, I really like that. I forgot. About that. <laughs> it's I mean, I think it is a great scene. They they film it really well and he faints at the sight of this. Then <laughs> the rooster coop scene, which is again, again from the book, you know, the greatest Indian invention is the rooster coop and how everyone kind of fits into these tiny cages and you see the process of how you kill chickens. And I was thinking of both of you thinking, you guys must be really happy you're vegetarian. <laughs> <laughs> and he said, almost think, that for yeah. them. <laughs> Are we eating lunch while I watched it, I think? Yeah. And I said, God, I'm really happy you don't eat meat. I thought it was quite well filmed. I, I mean, I have seen like various chicken slaughtering uh, videos before. <laughs> And how Pandora spends her free time. <laughs> hey, I, I was a I was PETA member once upon a time. I saw the promotional videos of uh, you know how K <laughs> KFC makes their chicken. <laughs> and he he talks about how even though he can't be at school, he continues his education by eavesdropping and listening and kind of waiting for any opportunity to gather information. And you see the stork driving up and he sees Mr. Ashok come out of the car. And it's kind of the way they film it. It's sort of like someone falling in love. Yeah. I like that. Me that really worked for me. With his, you know, he's taking his earbuds out and he has his cool like aviator glasses and he's walking around looking really suave. <laughs> like a rom-com when you meet the love interest for the first time. It and is. Well, I mean, that, that kind of is the narrative, isn't it? Yeah, that's why I think it was. Yeah. Like, I liked that. Because he also, at the end of the film, and I think it's really poignant, he refers to him as his ex. Yeah. Mm. And like, it is, their relationship is like a couple almost. Yeah, but Balram see, sees him from afar, pursues him, works his way into his life, mm. um, 
gets jealous of his like other partners. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, I thought there was quite a lot of tension actually. What type of tension? The sexual tension. I don't know if it was sexual tension, but it was definitely like. I I th- I thought there were a number of times where possibly they would end up snogging or something, and and then what's coming? Like yeah, yeah like. And then the boss would realise what would happen, or the next day he'd pretend it had never happened, or something where he would be taken advantage of. Um, and and that sort of seemed to fit with the, uh, you know, the, the social. Yeah. Theme. Maybe I didn't pick up on that uh, because I'd already read the book, maybe, and the book has less of that kind of overt tension. Maybe if I read watched the movie first, I might have. The movie also definitely makes them more like Pally, like in, God, yeah. in the book. Like he, you get hints of him being kinder to him than his father or his brother, but like. They never like play video games together or any of that kind of montage you get of them bonding yeah. at the beginning. That's kind of weird. Yeah, in in the book, it's much more like Bell Rams, like a pet that he quite likes rather than a servant. Yeah. Whereas in the movie, it's much more like there's like a, a more of a like a, a human bond between them. You get the bit in the bed where they're singing together and stuff like that. Like they yeah. just, like they build way more of a bond between them. I think. And so he decides to, I forget what gives him the, oh, he, he, oh, what happens is, so in the film, he hears that the family needs a second driver from some, we don't know where, seemingly from the cafe. And he tells his grandmother that he wants to learn to drive and they give him the money to learn. So he goes to Dunbad and he learns to drive. Well, it was quite a funny scene with the teacher in the car. And yeah. he, he goes to the gate of the Stork's house and he forces them to let him try out to be their driver. He gets hired. So he gets his room where he uh, shares with the other driver and he gets his uniform. But he's, he's mostly forced to do housework. And we meet Pinky, who is like kind of mauling him which is a little bizarre, like touching his back and the first time they see him, she sees him. She seems even more intensely Western, I think, when you meet her than in the book, in her perspective on things. And just because, you know, she left when she was 12. You, I, I would think she have, would have a little more understanding for, for etiquette <laughs> of how the society exists versus how she is behaving in the film. And they quiz him and sort of make fun of him, which they do in the book, you know, about the internet and things like that. And he doesn't know. And I mean, he's obviously sort of upset and he knows it's wrong the way they've treated him. And then you see him massaging the stork's feet and it comes off so much more disgusting in the book where he talks about like his, the flakes of like dead skin coming off in the water and how you can never get the smell of feet out of your hands no matter how many times he washes them mm. and Boy. you see Kishan his brother coming to get money because he's promised to give his family money and he 
follows this is when he and he finds out that the first driver is muslim and at the same time you have the great socialist who's come over to the house and she makes this thing with balram and tries to call him over and she's telling him he has to pay i think it's like two million rupees or something like that so no i will i want to notate the way and maybe i'm misinterpreting it the way they're structuring the politics of the film seems different than the book but it also seems and it seems slight but it's also significant at the same time that the great socialist in the film does seem like the workers party versus in the book the great socialist is just as corrupt as any other political party Oh, I thought in the film they were totally interchangeable. I don't know, Chan and Ellie, did you notice that they framed her as a politician slightly different than the politician in the book? Yes, and so I know you get like the workers celebrating when she wins and all that kind of thing, but at the same time, seeing her take a tax bribe is that proof that she's corrupt, I would say, as corrupt as whatever other party is. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you see her as uh, absolutely as that kind of a politician mm. in that scene where she flips immediately from being all polite and genteel to being totally like, you will pay me, otherwise I will take your business away. It's that scene. Yeah, because Bert Bauer makes a joke about it, doesn't he, about how it's meant to be like the greatest democracy in the world, mm. but both parties are just being paid off by everyone. Something I've never heard. Is that a phrase? I am not, I'm not, I'm not aware, but no. Yeah. You're the greatest democracy in the world? Um, well, I think certainly the largest democracy population-wise, maybe. It was an odd phrase. It kept, every time it was used, I was like, I'm not sure that's a thing. Um, I didn't 100% understand that scene, actually, with uh, the great socialist and, and Balram, in that she calls him over as though to do something, and then... Nothing really happens. Well, it's meant to be, and I don't think they say this in the film, and it makes it a little bit confusing. The two million rupees she's asking for is their income tax on their coal. Right. So there are coal miners, and it's a tax essentially to the government that they're meant to pay. That's mm. meant to be like a normal tax that you just pay, but they don't want to pay. And I, I think she's trying to get him to say, do you think he, they owe this money to the government to help the people or not? Well, yeah, it felt like there was something coming, like a point of conflict. And then because the, that conversation gets drawn. Yeah, because the oh, entire no, thing... Yeah, the whole thing is a point of conflict. The fact that she's engaged with him and brought him into the conversation with the, with the mongoose and his family and stuff. But it, but it felt like it was about to go somewhere like that she was about to say to him so what do you think well she did and say to he, him like do you think they're fucking me <laughs> um but he doesn't uh, he's not he's not given any opportunity to answer he's yeah. not given any you know who do i what do i do it, it just felt a bit oddly handled yeah but I, take, I take your point just by bringing him into the conversation she's making him part he, she doesn't do that in the book and then the whole thing in the book is that him going around bribing ministers so they don't have to pay this income tax that she wants them to, or the, that they're supposed to pay. Which is, I mean, I think it worked perfectly fine in the film. You understand she wants money. They don't want to give it to her. They want to give less money to somebody else. Yeah. So that's what they do. And then they've, they've backed the wrong horse. Yeah, and they end up having but, to pay more money. Right. Um, 
and then but yeah that's, that's unfortunate but that's how it goes so after this he finds out that his master is going to delhi because they want to essentially save themselves and figure out how to get ahead of her and he forces the first driver to step down so he can go with them to delhi and and he he like this is the thing he's kind of paralleling his bosses by like i feel bad i should do something but i'm not going to do something about the other driver yeah like why couldn't the other driver just keep his job but stay there and he goes but, that, but this is what i really liked about the movie the whole world totally adds up and makes sense it's not that he's a hero who's going to act any differently mm-hmm. He's pursuing his own agenda in the same way everybody else is. Yeah. The, the reason the reason he had to quit was because all he is is a driver. He can't go to them and go, I don't want to go to Delhi. The only way that Balram can go to Delhi is if he's the only driver. Mm-hmm. So his options are quit and get a reference, maybe, or get to go work somewhere else. Or Balram says, I'm afraid he's a Muslim and you hate Muslims, so now he's fired and will never be a driver again. So his only option is to quit because that's the only option available to him. His only power he's got is to is to quit. Yeah. And so they arrive at this apartment block in this very Western, well, sort of the modern Delhi. And he goes to the servants' quarters, which are in the garage. And these looked much nicer than the book depicted them. The yeah. book made it seem infinitely worse than it was in the, the movie proper, like masses of people sharing a room like the room was quite yeah nice i think relative to the book's description yeah it definitely felt like a lot of empty space down there yeah. uh didn't, didn't feel like it was loads of people crammed in so ashok and he the mongoose asked him to take them with this bag to go see various government officials they go to the president's house and then there's the scene of Balram getting dosa for the mongoose and getting rid of the potatoes because they make him gassy. And there's a line, and I think he says, I don't think they say it in the book, but I just wanted to notate it because it obviously comes back around at the end when he's in the car with Ashok and he's saying how his name isn't a great name and then Balram says oh but it's nice and he was like well then you should keep it <laughs> which I thought was a good bit of foreshadowing <laughs> so and then the, the, to Ellie's point then you see this bonding between them this kind of real palliness where they're playing video games and he's playing tennis with Ashok and there's the joke of, of like him listening to him have sex with Pinky <laughs> and there's a real line of like the blurring of sort of the servant master relationship that had been dictated before this. He takes him to the mall and you have him hanging out with the other drivers and there's this little thing that's from the book as well about the murder magazine that they read to distract them from wanting to murder their actual bosses. <laughs> And the drivers are making fun of him because, and it, there's more of it in the book about him saying that women don't have 
hair on their body like they do in his village. And he decides he doesn't want to hang out with them anymore and kind of starts to distance himself really. And this is, I think, like one of those, you know, of many moments, but one of those moments where you start shifting him being like, I'm not going to be a part of this anymore. Like I'm above or, you know, separate from these type of drivers. I'm not like them. The book, the book does a slightly better job of, um, of showing just how often he's kind of forced to either choose to hang out with these people who he doesn't like, like the other drivers, or to sit by himself. The amount of times the book has him drive somewhere, them say, oh, we'll be back in half an hour, and it's like six hours later, they come back and he's just had to sit in the car or stand at the car waiting for them, not interacting with anyone else. The movie doesn't quite showcase how often he is just ruminating and sitting by himself. Not healthy. That's how you mm. turn into a murderer. <laughs> he decides that he wants to sleep alone and he's, again, so much nicer than in the book. So in the book, his room that he ends up staying alone in is filled with mosquitoes and then you have cockroaches covering the walls, eating, I think it's the limestone, the like the raw yeah, um, wall the movie does show the cockroaches and stuff, but it's not half as bad as the book is indicating. It's indicating that if he didn't have the net up, he would be covered in cockroaches. Yeah. So, and that's how much he hates these other drivers. Like he'd rather sleep with the cockroaches yeah. than with the other drivers. They decide. Which I never. I, Go ahead. Yeah, I didn't really get that. I must say, um, why why he didn't why he disliked them so much. Um, well, the, the the book does this portrays this better. Like they're always kind of making fun of him and picking on him, or having like conversations that he feels uncomfortable about or weird about. Even the fact that he like seems quite fond of a shook in the book, they make fun of him for being a goody two shoes essentially and liking his master. Um, okay. I, th I think that plays up to his whole thing of always wanting to be the best servant possible. I think it's like, yeah, I agree. It's part of him like distancing himself from them because he doesn't want to be, he doesn't see himself as like them. No. I think he's always had this thing where he's not just a driver. Like the rest of them are kind of fairly resigned to their face. They know that's what they'll do their whole lives. So I think maybe yeah, that's just. In the movie, I felt he was buying into this idea that he could be at an elevated level where he's his master's buddy. Mm. So he, he doesn't want to associate with them because that would be like admitting he was on that level. Yeah. yeah. Or he's on an upward trajectory. Yeah, and I, I was never I was never quite sure if that guy with the with the, the discoloration um was supposed to be a friend or an enemy or or a mixture of the two. I was never he only, he only kind of um turns around and kind of goes to them as, for like friendship after he's made to sign the confession in both the book and the movie. That's the kind of turning point where he realises that he isn't actually friends with them. They aren't his family. And that's when he starts going, how can I make money from these people? What can I do to, to earn my way out of here sort of thing? Yeah, he, he uses them to his advantage, but he never... Yeah, in, in the book, the uh, drive with uh, Vice Logo is the one that helps him find like a Ukrainian prostitute. <laughs> but which you don't, you don't have that in the movie. He does intimate he can. He says, you know, if your master wants whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He actually does. 
get a prostitute. He doesn't successfully sleep with her, but he gets a prostitute in the book. A lot more sex going on in the book, <laughs> kind of. Uh, and or uh, dipping the beak, as they call it. <laughs> never heard that phrase before me neither when they first <laughs> mentioned it at the beginning i was like do they mean sex it took me a minute to <laughs> understand what they're talking about so they decide to go back well his master wants to go back to the village and he <laughs> there's this whole scene which i mean it made me laugh it took me a second to realize him like creating this joke about the holy objects as they're driving where he's he like ends up scratching his eye or something as they're passing something holy and Ashok thinks it's like he's praying <laughs> so you have this bit where Balram is just taking a, the piss out of them and saying oh that's a holy tree there's a holy rock <laughs> quite a nice little almost revenge sequence from them being like oh he doesn't know what the internet is he's like oh well you don't know what a holy object is. you know do you know what I mean it's like a reverse oh, I, I read it slightly insane. I read it slightly differently I didn't. I didn't feel like he was taking the piss out of them at all. I felt like he liked the fact that they thought he knew something they didn't, and he was oh, kind of yeah. relishing, even if he was making it up. Them asking him questions and him getting to like be the authority on something for once. Yeah, that's true. That's a nice way. Uh, that, that, that was how I read it, and it also felt uncomfortably familiar from times in Asia, times in India. Um, times in the Middle East when you know you're trying to make conversation with your driver and you're not 100% sure if they're telling you what they think you want to hear or if they're telling you you know what is actually true but then that's a that's a current that runs through the whole thing yeah um yeah and you see that later on where he he does things that he knows that's what his master wants to hear versus what actually the truth about the situation yeah when they go for dinner after pinky's gone as well that's a similar a similar instance i mean that this to me was the most interesting thing and and possibly because it it felt very real uh because of experiences i've had but um you know the 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 upper class people are always themselves they they might be pretending to each other but they are always whoever they are whereas all of the lower class people are having to be several different people they're mm-hmm. having to be the person that they are in their their profession their caste their place in the world and who they really are so upstairs and downstairs and the those moments where the two collide are just really fascinating yeah you know the, the moment where he's signing the paper and it's like he's aware that they're treating him in a way that's not, it doesn't add up. And yet he has no choice. And it's all, you know, uh, I found, found those bits really interesting. That he drops them off at, they're visiting the Buffalo, which is their uncle. And he goes to see his family and we see his grandmother and she wants to try and marry him off, but he refuses to, cause he's just, he doesn't, he's, he's really, now setting the boundary and resisting anything that would further sort of cement his, you know, his, his life to this and never anything more. And now I think about it, that also 
there was another reason why I felt that there was going to be a sexual undercurrent between him and his mum. <laughs> because he didn't want to get married. Well, he keeps pushing away at the marriage thing mm -hmm. and he's getting closer and closer to his master. And there's some, there's some parallel here, and I can't put my finger on it, to another famous book. Well, I think where, in the... Where the servant wants to become the master. Okay. And that that level of... Are you talking about ambition, Parasite? I, I still have not seen Parasite. Oh, Tom, Tom, come on. I, I know. Um, no, it's it's something else. Um, I mean, I did keep thinking about Gormenghast, but it's not Gormenghast, it's something else. Um, what I liked about this scene was it felt like Baran was almost hoping for some sort of not hero's return, but I think he thought they were going to be a bit more impressed because he was going back in this uniform, in a car, he'd like kind of elevated himself somewhat, but all they wanted to do was to put him back on the exact same path they wanted for him before he'd even left. They yeah. still wanted him to get married and have the same life as his brother. Oh, yeah, totally. and the fact totally. they didn't understand that he'd like, for him at least, had a much better life than, than that. He couldn't quite uh, understand. But I, but I thought it was a little bit worse than that. I thought it was a real shattering of this illusion that he'd gone anywhere different. Yeah, yeah, exactly that. You're still in the structure and we're just going to pull you back to where you really want. You. Yeah, yeah. I think it's at this point where he it becomes even more abundant that it's not like there's loads of different levels he can work between. He's either lower, like he says, like no belly or has a belly. And I think it's at that point he realises he has to become a master. He can't be like some happy middle ground where he has a slightly better life. It's all or nothing. Yeah. So... Uh, then you have, it's Pinky's talking to Balram, and I think this is when she's saying he needs to view himself better, right? I thought this was interesting, because this isn't in the book, but I remember. Yeah, like, and this is I the whole painting her, her very sympathetic, I think, in mm -hmm. the film. Is this where he was scratching himself and he had a dirty uniform? Is that the senior? Oh yes, yeah, that yeah, that's it. Like talks to him and says, you know, my parents work in a, I can't what it is, a, like a bodega, which is like a little, yeah. which is like a little corner grocery store. Yeah, and she asks him like, "What do you want for your future?" Mm. Bell round. He's like, basically to serve you forever. <laughs> She's like, no. Yeah, she's like, that can't be, can't be what you really want. And yeah, it's great because they're still both playing the roles. Mm. Like, even though she's pretending she's trying to break out of the role, that's exactly the role that she wants to be playing. Yeah. She, she wants to pretend to be a rede social redeemer while still having him dress nicely and serve her tea in, in the way that he's supposed to. Yeah. Yeah, I just, I found it a little bit annoying. And I don't know if it has to do with casting, but just the way they... Leave her alone. Sorry. But no, it's just that she's not, she really doesn't redeem herself in the way or try to in any way. I think it's the book that the way the film does, because it's this sort of ugly contradiction of her character of sort of wanting, saying they want to dismantle the structure, like you were saying, Tom, 
and by just acknowledging it, but not actually doing anything to change it. So she's acknowledging that it's shit, the, his treatment, but she doesn't do anything to help him, you know, nor does, um, you know, and then very casually just shouts at him because he's, you know, acting inappropriately, but no one's ever told him not to act. Well, and worse than that, like, even though she seems quite emotionally strained about the whole situation, she still does let him sign the confession that says mm. he did a murder that she committed. Like, she's all for trying to, like... Oh, it's, it's beautifully yeah. hypocritical. Yeah, yeah, exactly, yeah, exactly, it's exactly that. But it feels so true yeah. as a result. It's the appearance of being good, but then still having the desire for power, and because of that refusing to acquiesce any of that power mm-hmm. the, the Gandhi thing was interesting in that respect um, they make a big deal out of driving past the Gandhi statue and they do it a few times they drive past it yeah they mention it in the yeah. book as well it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a kind of pivotal point of the book as well but they say something in the movie I can't quite remember but they say like it's kind of funny that we're driving past Gandhi while we've just yeah I don't know. bribed some politicians yeah, yeah, or, or whatever it is. And it's it's sort of, I know, um, it's like they, they acknowledge the hypocrisy of the situation and just move straight past it. Yeah. So then you have his makeover scene, like every good movie needs. Yes, takes off the glasses and he becomes a beautiful boy. <laughs> so he goes to the market, he gets some toothpaste, some new clothes, new shoes. Also, I realized at this point that um, they took out the whole bit about the lizard phobia. Oh, what's the lizard phobia? In the book, he has this like debilitating pho- phobia of lizards. Like he paralyzes at the sight of lizards. God, I can't even remember that. Yeah, yeah did a lizard in his room or something. Well, because in the classroom, remember, he freaks out at school because of a lizard and then his dad has to come Maybe, and yeah. kill the lizard. And then... He has a moment, like the school kids tease him with the lizards, and then there's a bit where he's in his bedroom and there's a lizard, and the his cousin has to get the lizard. Okay, yeah, maybe maybe it doesn't ring a bell, yeah, but yeah, I've forgotten about it too. There, right? It's just a, a a bit of his character, I think, rather than necessary to the actual story. It doesn't feel like it adds really anything to the narrative. So. Then you have, so the pinnacle accident, so we're back to the beginning of the movie, where Balaram arrives in his Maharaj costume and he takes them out. Then there's this bit, which is in the book as well, where uh, Pinky abandons him on the side of the road, which is like... Yeah, can someone explain this to me? I didn't, I, I just didn't really understand what was going on. I mean, I literally understood what was going on, but it just felt so odd. I thought I just took it as she was drunk and be dumb. Yeah, it just felt very abrupt and then just got reversed really abruptly. And yeah, I mean, sure, drunk and dumb. Yeah. Well, and also sort of how, you know, she says she cares about him, but clearly, like, he's just someone to mess with, like a pet, you know doesn't she doesn't actually really care about his feelings i mean it's heart-wrenching i think really and so he just waits as well like he doesn't even think of doing anything else Mm -hmm. he just sits on the 
the side of the road, like immediately just falls into the shadows. And then they come back and get him and Pinky wants to drive. So they're driving and I, I, I quite like the cinema of it, of where they, you can't hear what anyone's saying. It's quite, it's all silent. Mostly, I think there's the music in the background, and then she, you see the flash of the child and them them hitting it, um, and then them freaking out and Balram taking them back home and then cleaning the blood off the car. And he goes upstairs, and Mongoose and the stork are there, and they get him to sign a document saying that he was alone in the car, and like seeing him realize what's happening but paralyzed and kind of not being able to do this and just kind of falling back on pleasing his master sort of behavior but you see like the tears kind of coming in his eyes yeah. I thought was a brilliant bit of acting like just that piece I, I thought it was beautifully played yeah the fact that he like well, as soon as he gets in the room like he throws himself at his feet and starts mm -hmm. trying to like massage his feet immediately um is awfully unnerving. Yeah, and him when he he walks outside and he's really frustrated and angry with himself because he's realized what's happened and he's, yeah. you know what this means. And when he crouches down and goes in that li little patch of bushes. Yeah, and you just see him from above like disappearing. I yeah, I thought that was. Uh, really well done mm -hmm. and then he's wandering around furious drinking and he goes back I guess it's the next day or a few hours later and he goes back upstairs and he you know they don't say anything so he just starts to massage the stork's feet and then Pinky comes out and she's like has no one said anything to him? And she tells, they tell him that um, no one found anything on the street. So there, no one's pressing charges. And she freaks out, which this doesn't happen in the book where she starts hitting the stork and like really flipping out about what assholes right. they are. I think there's a couple of points when she tells them off for how they treat him. Like when he, he kicks him, I think that might yeah. be him. And she's like, what did you do that for? But she doesn't get as invested she's much more kind of independently kind of powerful mm -hmm. in in the movie yeah the scene where she's like arguing with them before they even go to Delhi you don't get any of that mm -hmm. in the book so the stork and mongoose leave and then he sort of wanders around Delhi kind of having this epiphany about you know these people are fucking screwing me over like why do I care why am I pleasing them and then Peaky comes into his room and I guess it's the middle of the night and then asks him to drive her and in the car. And I felt like, I know it's just a tiny, I'm nitpicking, but she says the line from the poem by Iqbal that in the book, this line is quite crucial and it is explained, I think quite well in the book by him meek meeting a book merchant and the book merchants reading to him from this book and he, happens to say this line she just kind of randomly says it when they're driving and it's not actually her saying it it's just his imagination mm -hmm. 
And I felt like it was a little out of context. Like they just threw that in from the book, but it didn't really make sense for her to say it. Yeah, it's, yeah it felt like quite artificial and just like they felt like they needed to tick a box because it was in the book already. Yeah, this is the, um, you spent years looking for the key, but the door's been open the whole time. Yeah. Some, something like that is the so line. Why would she ever say that? Like she's she's talked to him and she's had perfectly pleasant conversations with him, but they're not at the stage of like quoting poetry. No, <laughs> it feels it feels like in in the, maybe the movie doesn't frame it that well. It feels like that's Belram realizing the fact that he could just leave, yeah. do something, and take kind of control of his life a little bit more. Um, but they frame it in this way where. Does she say it? Does he imagine her saying it? It could totally be like dream sequencing, couldn't it? Oh, I, was, I was sure he was imagining it. Yeah. I was sure that in, in a interpretation of her state in some way. Mm. Yeah. Or, or what he was taking away. Yeah. Maybe, maybe it's meant to be like the fact that she's just up and leaving and going is what makes him realise that that's an option. Mm. The fact that you could just decide, yeah, I don't like this life anymore, I'm going to make a change. Although she's going to carry that guilt with her wherever she goes. Mm. Yep. There's no escaping that. Well, I mean, if you're... Can someone explain to me what the thing about the amount of money was? Because I think I lost what the thread was there. Oh, the in... they explain that better in the this... book as well. That so she... This woman, he says, why 97,000 or 970,000? Mm. Did she need three? No, you're not thinking like rich people think. But I didn't quite understand what the purpose it's... of that. Yeah. broken down a little bit better in the book that I think the the amount of money like minus I think it's like 300 rupees or something would be his wages or something like that and then he's like oh well she thought to give me this much but then as a rich person it's like uh well they don't actually need all of that so I'm going to take a bit back but really the level of how they undervalue someone like that just means that he's worth that much more of the actual amount that she was willing to give him. So we're supposed to read it not as her being generous or mm -hmm. actually trying to make a difference, but actually giving him the least that she can do because that's how rich yeah, people are. Exactly. Right. It's pretty, it's probably like the case of like this is how many rupees she's had left. Doesn't need them because she's going back to the states. Yeah. So just gives them to him. It's not like she thought I'm going to do this big gesture and go and get money out and give him this amount. That's why it's such a random amount. It's just going. This is what I've got left. I'm going to give it to him to alleviate to alleviate my guilt somewhat. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So a hundred rupees is like a pound or something insane yeah did, i didn't realize like, how little rupees were to pounds yeah because yeah. when he buys those trousers and it's like 200 rupees i was like oh big spender and then i realized that was two pounds yeah like oh yeah 100 rupees yeah. To pound. i think at the end they have to give it's like four million rupees which is forty thousand pounds no, no well, four hundred thousand. Four hundred thousand, 000 and, and it's just like that's a nice chunk of change but it's not what i thought it was <laughs> no four million rupees is forty thousand. okay i'm right, right. But, yeah here we go yeah i guess two less zeros here uh, according to google so ashok gets really pissed at ballroom and essentially blames him for pinky leaving mm -hmm. and he he just sort of waits around 
even though essentially Ashok is kind of firing him, but Balaram sort of just ignores it. And then he kind of, he helps Ashok out of being completely a wreck. But at the same time, he's like taking advantage of the situation and, you know, drinking his liquor and wearing his clothes. And the scene of when he takes him out to eat and he, Ashok says, oh, I want to like eat like you all the time. Yeah, you know the real India. Mm. And it's such bullshit. Tourist. And in his, own, in his own country. Exactly. I mean, so then the mongoose comes back to help Ashok sort out of the fact that he's getting divorced. And you see, and you see this sort of really toxic treatment happening, this back and forth where he just snaps at Balram. He's like, oh, I don't need you anymore. Like, I'm done. Like, I'm not going to, yeah. I don't need, I don't need you as a friend. I have my brother here. And then Balram is just completely he's like fuck you know fuck off you know and he, he starts really riling himself up and he talks to the other drivers and he's like how do I screw him over <laughs> and you know he creates these phony invoices for repairs sells the petrol picks up customers at the car just to try and get money and take it you know because he realizes this guy does not care about me like he will turn on me in a second and there's this scene where, oh yeah, and then there's this scene again, and it's like continues this toxic cycle of when Asha comes into his room and they start singing together. Yeah. And it's just like, what a joke. Like the, to, yeah. Kiss, 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 kiss. <laughs> I think also because the, he does like have more fantasies about women in the book than he does in the film. Like he has a lot of yeah. erections in the book. Like it's very poignant. <laughs> <laughs> he see he sees boobs, he gets an erection. So, you know, there is like a very slight nod to that one. Pinky. Come on. So, um, and I think maybe that's why I didn't read into the relationship that way because he has a very strong sexual desire for women in the book. <laughs> and then, I wish I, wish I could remember. What I'm thinking okay. of, but there is a very, there's a sort of very classical literary story about a master and servant, and it, it's almost like the next step on in this sort of blurring of. God, I want to, I want to think maybe they get the servant to pretend to be the master. Okay. And then, but then the sexual component is like another exercise of power, and it's another way of of the relationship becoming more entangled. Which is why I assumed it was going in that direction. Well, you can so text me after the recording when you remember it. <laughs> <laughs> They're in the car and Balram gives a ruby to a beggar and Ashok and the and Mongoose flip out at this. And it's also like such an unnecessary expression of emotion over this act. But it is sort of like he has, the driver now has this, ex, I, it's showing him having like excess wealth where he can just give away money and it, he, him having some sort of independence that's separate yeah. from his bosses. And it's, it's more than that as well, isn't it? It's, it's the first moment where he acts in their eyes at least like he's better than them. They're like, why are you giving them money? Like, 
if, if anyone's going to give them money, it's us. Like, what makes you think you're not any better than the beggar? Essentially, yeah. I, I felt like that's how they felt towards Bell around that point. So, I'd, so I didn't, I didn't see it in that respect. The idea of him giving away money, I just found startling. Um, and I sort of thought that that's probably where they were coming from. Like, how can you possibly have enough that you can give something away? Although I also felt it didn't feel tonally quite accurate to me because I'm, I, having been in those sort of situations, it's a fairly normal thing for the driver to give out small bits of backshish mm. to, to, to beggars in the street. It, it's an odd thing for them not to, but uh, maybe that's my experience versus the film is different. So Ashok is going around in the car with this suitcase full of money and he's giving out bribes and then in the book it plays a little bit different where he essentially well Ashok assumes that he wants to go back home to get married but so he gives him money for that but instead you can tell Ashok is getting ready to get rid of him and he gives him this money for a one-way ticket and then there's this scene where in the book, I think it's, it has a sort of another level to it, but you see him sit, seeing this man taking a shit in sort of pile of mud, he's probably more shit. And he just sits and starts shitting with him and they just start laughing at each other at like the, you know, God, this is shit and fucked up and just everything is insane. And in the book, they're on, it's like a river or something. And it's just like a queue of, I think it's, it's behind one of like the fancy malls and there's like a shanty town and yeah. there's sort of this waste essentially river and essentially people just like take a dump along it. And it's this queue of people taking a dump. So he just joins the queue of people taking a dump and he sees this other guy smiling about it and they just start laughing hysterically. So I, I think seeing that, large group of people and the way they describe like one person just replaces another person taking a dump really kind of drives home the point of what's happening versus in the film it I mean it's there but it's just not to the intensity I felt hmm. you get a lot more of that side of um like things about him not being allowed in the mall and stuff and and like the separation behind every mall there's like a like you say, like almost a shanty town or like another world where that's where he's welcome, but he's not welcome in the other half. Mm -hmm. So you, I feel like they give a lot more context to that in the book. And then they go and they pick up the great socialist and she demands 4 million rupees on the Monday. And so he overhears this. And then you find that his grandmother has sent his cousin Dharam to, for Balram to take care of because he hasn't been sending them any money anymore. And he tells Ashok about this and they take the day off. Well, he lets him take the day off and he sees that he's found his replacement and that's why he's let him do this. And he takes... Dharam to the zoo and they see this white tiger and he faints and essentially you know his breaking point of realizing him being this white tiger and needing to break free from his cage the metaphor of it 
he finds an empty Johnny Walker bottle and he's, you know, you see in his head, his, his plan is forming and he gives Durham this money, hoping that he'll run away with it. And he picks up Eshuk. They pull over to the side of the road and he says they're having trouble with the wheel. He gets him to come outside of the car and then he beats him with the back of his broken bottle and then slits his throat and drives off. So he goes and gets Dharam. They get on the train and they go on the run. They end up in Bangalore. Well, he, um, sorry, well, he's, yeah, yeah. he's at the train station. He's not going to go back and get his... his nephew or whatever it is yeah uh, and then he he tell a change of heart and goes back and gets the he kids sees some kids and he sees a mum and her kids on the yeah, yeah yeah and also what is this kid gonna do what the, yeah where is he gonna go i guess just live on the street the kids he see the kids he sees are like begging on the street yeah. so he knows in that moment that if he doesn't get him that's the only thing the kid's gonna be able to do yeah so he makes the choice to go and get him yeah, he makes a better choice than someone else would. You know, mm. that's you know that's not in his interest necessarily to get him. But... Yeah. Well, also he's he's aware at this point, and they establish it in the book and the movie that the fact that he's done this, he's killed a shook, he's stolen the money. Um, if they can't find him, they will go after his family. So yeah. all of his family back in the village are like basically dead, regardless because of this act. So I think he's trying to save the only person from his family that he's got any say in saving in that moment mm -hmm. so he decides that he wants to run this taxi service and to do so he goes to the police station to bribe them to be able to do this and he starts white tiger drivers and he takes the name ashuk as he was given permission to by ashuk mm -hmm. and to parallel, I suppose, what happened before one of his drivers uh, accidentally runs over a kid on a bicycle and to I suppose, repent or take care of the situation, he's, you know, bribing the cops so they don't charge him, but he takes responsibility and he gives the family money and then offers to give the boy's brother a job as a driver. And in the book, I says, I think there's like a line about how you can choose to be good. And this is meant to be the example of him being good, you know, obviously not actually taking responsibility, but in the sense, you know, not wanting to give away his power, but also trying to sort of bring someone up with his power, I suppose, sort of a gray moral area. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. Do you think, I mean, it's not right, but in the context of the situation of what he's doing? To, uh, to, to him, like, to Balram at this point, he is, like, a good guy for doing it that way around. And in context, in contrast to how he was treated, like, yeah, he is, <laughs> he is nicer. He's, like, helped out the guy who is his employee, He's taking ownership in some semblance of, of the situation. Like the kid that Pinky runs over gets nothing. Yeah. Nothing good comes of that. At least to Bell Ram, like he's supported the family. He's trying to help the son, the surviving son. Um, obviously, like it's awful still, but for him, he's justified himself as he's the good guy. I do think 
think it qualifies as an improvement on the previous behavior. Like it's, you know, no kids should be dying. That goes without saying. But like, mm. if that's the situation and the choice is the family gets nothing or the family gets some kind of support, it's got to be like the yeah. next level up, hasn't it? The, the, the book is interesting in terms of how it frames it slightly differently. Uh, in the book, Baron talks about how um, it's the constant pressure of the companies he works for. So the uh, kind of outsourcing companies he's providing a taxi service for demand more and more like efficiency, quicker responses, mm. getting their employees home in faster time. So his drivers are always having to break speed limits, drive faster than they should, run red lights. Uh, so it's kind of like this is a cost of operation for him, like a collateral damage to his business surviving and thriving in this kind of um, economy. Mm. Um, whereas the movie doesn't really... I don't think it really has to touch on it, but I think that's an interesting difference the book goes into. Yeah, and also he talks about, you get a different conversation after this, where he talks about, you know, I'll probably eventually just like sell this and move on to the next scene. You know, he wants to invest in real estate because talking about Mm -hmm. like Bangalore being the next, you know, big city. So, you know, it's always the next thing. It's always about tomorrow. And never kind of being stagnant in his role in society, really. Um, as well as I like that there's a little dialogue about Dharam, his cousin slash nephew, obviously realizing something has happened, but not the extent of it and kind of using that to his advantage. And he's essentially praising him for like, good job and not just like, you know, following along, like yeah. realizing. When he asked for more ice cream, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah little entrepreneurship in him (laughs) and in the film it ends with him essentially trying him trying to meet the premier of china and being ignored by him and then him saying what is it like you know white people are going down the future is yeah he says this in the book as well yeah it's the the time of the white man is over the the brown and yellow man are on the rise Mm -hmm. they'll see it in his lifetime yeah i think i i thought him essentially fanboying over the premiere was a little bit out of character and I felt like I enjoyed the fact that he never really you don't think he's ever he'll ever meet him or actually have a conversation with him from these emails I didn't mind the scene in the movie honestly just because of how what I loved about it was it was clear to the audience that the premiere like had no idea who he was, didn't care who he was, and was glad just to move on. But Balram weirdly still saw them on the same level. To him, they were both just entrepreneurs trying to do the best they could. Um, and the fact that he could pay his way to meet him was good enough for him. Tom? I, mean, I, I found it a bit odd. Um, I'm not really sure what, as a framing device, it adds to the narrative. Um, you know, if, 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 if the movie had started with him looking out a window and just talking to himself um, and it just not had that scene at the end, would it really have made any difference? Yeah. But I mean, yeah, I sort of agree. It's, it, you know, slightly charming that in his in his eccentricity or his identification is, um, but I, I, there's also, I think, 
sort of a slight note of having broken free of, of the shackles of the society that he that he found himself in and now is essentially the sky is the limit because he is no longer as constrained as he was. Ellie, did you, because that the addition of him trying to meet the Premier. Yeah, I mean, I didn't hate it. Like, I think because there were some elements of the film that they'd obviously just made more visual and like easy to translate. Um, I didn't hate it, but yeah, I don't. I don't think I needed it. Like, if if we didn't have that and we just never met the premier, and it was just him talking to him as though he was, I think that would have been equally effective. Um, but I did wonder the whole way through, and I don't know if this kind of is a question for you, Tom. But like, I was thinking whether or not I would have enjoyed the film as much if I hadn't read the book. And I don't know if there were some bits. I guess as we've been going through, we've kind of touched on it, but as like that didn't make sense or like you said at the beginning were kind of picked up and then dropped and didn't really have much context because they were like nods to things in the book that you might not know about otherwise? Uh, I'm, I'm definitely getting the sense that a few things were nods to things in the book that I wasn't aware of but in general I thought it was really well done I mean I enjoyed the movie. Mm. Uh, I think it could have been a just a touch tighter um, but no, I, I, you know, I, I, I enjoyed it. I found it effective. I thought it had a sense of, of, of place and tone and it was logically coherent to its its understanding of the world. And um, Yeah, I enjoyed both too. I just, I found myself wondering as I watched it if I would have picked up on everything, like all the nuances if I hadn't read the, kind of read the story already. Did you feel like that? Uh, yeah, it's, it's really hard to kind of separate the two after having read the book. It's hard to know how I would have engaged with the film without the context of it. Um, I always wonder this though, like I yeah, always wonder if tough. I would have enjoyed it as much if I didn't have the context. Because I, there's stuff I'm like, oh, it's, I, 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 oh, I missed the context of that from the book, or it's a shame they didn't do this. But if I just watched the movie, maybe I, because I wouldn't be aware of that kind of context or subtext, I wouldn't even pick up on anything. Um, well, this is why I do it. It's a public service. Yeah, we need, but then we, I, then we also need someone who's only read the book. <laughs> That's um, a harder job, I would say. Mm. Yeah. I, I, of all the stuff we've done, this is the one of the closest ones to how much I've enjoyed both. It's been quite close. Normally, it's clear cut, like I've enjoyed one infinitely more than the other. But yeah, I, I mean, thought this like was so. this was a really really good adaptation. I thought the movie was really great. Yeah, um, I, I, I agree. Yeah. Yeah, I thought. No, I think this is. The closest to being like the same as the book, but still, you know, the changes that they did that are necessary for making a film didn't mm. um, sort of take away from the essence of the book's story. And so I, 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 yeah, I enjoyed the film. There was definitely, I, there were certain moments where I was filling in the gaps, I think mentally having read the book, but I felt like it was still a good film, albeit I think my only criticism, it was a tiny bit more glossy than the book was and could have been added just a little bit grimmer tone to certain aspects of it. I Thinking about this is also as well, it's sort of, you know, this story of the underbelly of India or what is actually going on in India I think you know I think it's meant to be 
I would assume factual to, in a sense, about the issues that still exist there in the so-called democracy. Who do you think this film is for? And what is it trying to tell us or like warn us? I mean, in the context of Netflix, it's for Jonas Brothers fans. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, Del. No, I do think having Priyanka Chopra and it makes it very widely marketable though like obviously she's like a huge huge star and is probably to my knowledge the biggest name in it and I think that's probably why they made a lot of the changes that they did to her character to make her a little bit more redeeming because it felt very western audience certainly in trying to show us as westerners a certain aspect like in well, there's a, there's a lot of exposition, isn't there? There's a lot yeah. of him explaining to somebody from outside the country how this works. Mm-hmm. The book does the same thing, though. The book mm-hmm. is the book has the exact same kind of exposition well, and explainers. The narrator is speaking to someone who isn't familiar. Yeah. Like, yeah. And not necessarily from England or, you know, from a Western culture. Again, not having read the book, but I would imagine some of the intent would be to uh, explain to somebody who is not familiar with the culture the sort of drivers and levers there are to the sort of great changes Mm -hmm. in the culture and and the political changes that we will (coughs) see over the next decades. Um, And I thought it did a pretty, the movie certainly did a pretty good job of old India, new India, outsourcing, um, you know, the, the sort of burgeoning wave of sort of capitalist entrepreneurs not being satisfied with their place and and the changes that all of that pushed through Um, and frankly you know a a country that potentially could be on the precipice of of serious collapse given how much underpinning there is from old structures that are under attack from from every direction. And they do touch on this a little bit more in the book about the because in yeah I mean it, it does happen in the film but sort of the falling of the political system that his bosses had been backing and how you have more political parties coming up that are meant to represent the people obviously but don't always and you do see you know various factions and I think yeah, at one point he says oh I should have been paying attention to certain groups of people or seeing, I think it was like the red bands and things like that. And that mm. there's a stirring happening. Well, I also think it's why they keep referencing Gandhi because, you know, father of the nation and all that. Um, I think, you know, they're, 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 the, the underpinning ideology is everything is business. Uh, politics is business, relationships are business, you know, everything. Yeah. It, it's, with that understanding, how can you possibly um, live in the old world? You, you need to come kicking and screaming into the new. Mm-hmm. And it is like, even though you could say almost as well that like the the Stork and Buffalo family, they're rich from the old world, like being coal miners or just landlords or getting rich off of farmers. Oh, yeah, when Ashok talks about going to Delhi and starting out an outsourcing thing, yeah. I was laughing his face at the prospect of yeah. of doing that. Like, 
cold is such a tangible thing to them. Yeah, and he's like, I think at one point the stork says, what is the internet? <laughs> and it's just, it's, it is sort of like, they will fall because that, you know, coal is a finite thing and the internet isn't, you know, you can, I mean, until someone invents a way to, you know, replicate coal, I mean, you won't need mining anymore if you can make it in a lab, but things like that, that's, I mean, that will disappear um, so their wealth, unless you do change and involve, evolve as what's happening, they, you know, you know, that, that will be the end of them that, yeah. and you're, and you're going to get, you know, what I suppose we had in the Western society and have their sort of industrial revolution. I mean, I, I suppose we, we're just lucky we didn't have to live through that. And we are the sort of middle class that came about because of it. So as clearly, I think I would say all of us enjoyed the film, correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Unless we have any other comments or rose and thorns? Well, I, I was slightly curious and I, I appreciate that this comment is really more about me than it is about anything else, right. but I was curious. I don't know if you guys have spent a lot of time in um, India or Asia or Zero. country. I've been, I've spent time in Egypt, that's the closest, but, you know, different, obviously. Yeah, I mean, a lot of it felt very familiar to me from living in the Middle East, for example. You know, the the idea of having a driver who just sits outside and waits for you, regardless of how long you're going to be, because that's what they do. Um, And it felt very resonant to me in terms of this constant fear and paranoia that you're not coming into that situation from the West, you are aware that people are playing a role and you're never entirely sure if you're being presented with the faith that they want you to see or, or what is actually true and going on. So I, I guess I was I was curious for anybody who who you know didn't didn't have a sort of real world experience of that, how real it felt um, or, or, or whether it felt somewhat um, contrived. For, for me, it felt like totally believable. Like I've not, I've not got any first-hand experience of it, but there was never any point where I was reading the book or, or watching the movie where I felt like this feels unrealistic or I couldn't imagine a person doing this just standing around waiting for some, their like employer to come back. It was all presented in such a way that the fact, like I think it was how matter of fact it was presented, made it feel just so believable. Like they didn't try and explain why they were doing this other than him talking about this kind of chicken coop kind of situation. It was just presented as like, this is the done thing and has been for generation and generation. Like it's ingrained in the culture and the, the society. Yeah, it's not totally believable to me. Yeah, there is definitely, I mean, I was sort of a kid, so there's certain aspects of the politics I wasn't aware of, but in Egypt, you know, being driven around by a driver and, um, them waiting for us when we were ready to go back. And then, you know, cause we were on a construction site and, you know, I do remember meeting, you know, the people doing the construction on those construction sites, which they did mention in the book more so than the film, you know, them coming from different countries to make money and they would set up these camps there and then they would go back when it was uh, 
done um, to like busing people in to do this work. So there, it definitely, there was a lot of realism to it, to what is happening still in those sort of burgeoning economies. Yeah, no, I was, I was just curious how, how a lot of people um, kind of related to it. But I, I think one of the reasons I liked it was it felt very, very real about, about, about that. Yeah. yeah. Back to Rosenthorns. <laughs> What's your Dan Goldberg, Rosenthorn? Um, I think the rose of the book, I mean, overall, I really enjoyed the book. I just loved all the sort of smaller, the C-plot moments almost. Like there, there's this thing about the chandeliers, which is, <laughs> was a bit ridiculous, but really pointed to like someone who wasn't, you know, born wealthy and what he in his mind represents wealth, having a chandelier in every single room of his home, even the bathroom. And he talks about seeing a kid having chandeliers hanging on a bunch of trees that he was selling on the side of the road and going up and buying all the chandeliers and then putting them in every room. So moments like that, I think, kind of really created the image of the story. Like it was really tangible, I think from those moments. So I love that. I don't know what really the thorn of the book is. I think overall, I just thought it was great. <laughs> if you, yeah, I can't know. Um, I think for the film, I thought, yeah, it was just a really good adaptation and really captured the essence of the book. Um, I think the moment of how he acts and I mentioned it before in the scene when they're getting him to sign the document saying that he killed the kid I thought that was a beautiful bit of acting and then him how he behaved afterwards I thought that was great uh Thorne I I think it, I just found it a little bit awkward the scene with him in the premiere and it's fine if people disagree with me Ellie why don't you go uh because I haven't thought of mine yet <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I think for me, the actual rose of the book was like the framing of it, just the premise of him emailing. Uh, I know, Tom, you said that this would have put you off reading it entirely, but I really, I think because it was unexpected, it kind of came in with no preconceived notions of it. And I just really enjoyed mm -hmm. the familiarity and the way he was sort of chatting to him like he was a yeah. an old friend. I just, yeah, that kind of made it for me. And that really brought the humour for me, which is what I enjoyed most about it. Mm -hmm. Um I don't know if there was a thorn. Like, obviously, there's some stuff in it that's quite uncomfortable to read, but I think that's important to it. Like, I didn't necessarily enjoy reading, as you said, more of the kind of grimier bits of it, and that kind of made it a bit grittier. But it, it didn't, if anything, that added to it because I think you need that to balance the kind of lighter stuff. Um, and the film, no, there was a lot of good stuff in the film. Like, I really did enjoy it as an adaptation. I think it was actually very true to the book. And I don't think, although it made some adjustments, I think it kind of really channeled the same energy. And I don't, you know, sometimes we think, oh God, they just ruined it. Like I didn't feel like that about this at all. I thought they did a really good job of adapting the source text. Um, my thorn was the bit with the chickens. <laughs> Fair enough. And <laughs> beat that if you will. <laughs> um, 
Similarly, yeah, um, I, I enjoyed the... the my, my rose to the book is kind of the tone of it. I really enjoyed the kind of the way it kind of slipped from comedy to kind of poignant moments of bleakness um, is quite hard to kind of handle. And I thought it didn't really misstep throughout the entirety of the kind of the book. Um, no real thorn from the book either. Again, like Ellie said, there are some uncomfortable bits of reading. But again, I think that's was, was were handled well and were impactful because of it. Um, for the movie, um, I thought it was a really, really compelling, impressive performance from the lead actor. How different kind of portrayal he gave from the scenes of him as a servant to the kind of flash forwards mm. to him running his business. He's like a different person. I yeah. Obviously styling, but... Um, but like he presents himself almost mm. as a different person. The way he kind of carries himself was like, was like a really powerful bit of performance, I thought, like really, really great. Thorn for me... It wasn't. It wasn't terrible, but the few scenes with the great socialist, I think, like Tom said, didn't quite hang together as well as I think they did in the books. Um, it felt a little, a little loose um, and slight in comparison to kind of how the great socialist is kind of presented throughout the books. Um, I didn't think they were bad at all, but. I expected more of it from the book. If I just watched the film, I don't think it would have stood out as much or even at all. But yeah, in context, it did. Tom? I've got nothing original to add to this. That's fine. You can repeat what we said. The, the, the rose with, I mean, the rose was that scene where he's being made to sign the, the confession yeah. is is very well executed on, on all counts. Mm. Um, you know, the, the the performance was great. Directing was great. The whole cut, cut the way it was cut. It, it, yeah, it was really great. Um, and Thorne, I just you know some of the um, the framing device with the Chinese premiere, I I wasn't sure what what was why, and I was just a tad confused. But um, you know, honestly, it's it's really nitpicky at that point to say anything is. I I, I really liked it. I thought it was a really good piece of work. This is a nice, well, in comparison to a few recent films we've done, <laughs> not being amazing. <laughs> I feel like I think this could have had a really nice reception, not to poo-poo streaming in cinemas. Could have good seen this done doing pretty well on an art house circuit. Yeah, because I feel like it's got, because Netflix is really pushing out product right now that I had to like search for it on my Netflix and I didn't realize it was out because it hadn't been served to me and normally I would get like you know most of the new releases at least yeah. once yeah I'm surprised they're not pushing this film more on it I don't know if they're maybe waiting or something but I feel like this is a potential nominee for stuff like this is a you know I've been sent it as a actor. okay good because there is like really good acting in this film and, and film direction yeah, but like I, I can't understand it. There wasn't. I didn't think there was like a bad performance. I thought everyone mm -hmm. really delivered. I thought it was a really great cast. Like, 
and certainly like best screenplay adaptation i thought it i think i think it is a great adaptation of a book yeah certainly agreed. i i think it i would garner to say it is one of the best one of the best adaptations we've read mm. yeah agreed in being like a very straightforward true to the book so yeah and every kind of choice of something they cut or changed I think makes sense. You can understand why those things were done. Yeah, no, you can really easily justify it. Like I, I don't, for the most part, question any changes that they made. So mm. quite happy with it. Um, so thank you guys. I'm glad, I'm glad we're starting this year off with a good in. <laughs> yeah. What are we doing as the next proper one? What's the next? I can take a look. There's actually quite a few interesting things coming out um, in the next like two or three months. So I'm actually quite happy, I think, for the most part for the selection that we have. Are you just looking at the same list that you sent to us? Uh, I wonder, I might have added some more things. So in February, you have, um, I mean, the problem is these dates kind of change and they've been adding things a little bit unpredictable what comes out. Mm -hmm. um you have news of the world the third to all the boys film <laughs> remember you ellie high quality very uh you have an un oh uh to olivia which i which i haven't actually looked into what that's about um there's like a disney plus film called flora and ulysses kids thing and then french exit mm. that's my pick French exit. Okay, we can do that. I the trailer looked really good, and there's a great cat starring in it. So okay, um, and it's Patrick Dewitt, which is Sean's favorite author. You've already read it, so I mean, he's <laughs> up there. I do like him. Tom, how do you feel? Uh, like I'm probably not going to read it. Okay. <laughs> did you come to the one when we did? What was it called? The Sisters Brothers. Sisters Brothers. I did not. No. Okay. Did you see that movie? I did not. Okay. I saw the trailer and made an informed decision not to. Okay. Interesting choice. I, yeah, I generally quite like Patrick Druitt's books, so I, I, already, I already ordered it, so I have it on my shelf. So It's good. It's like, it, uh, it's interesting how the subject matter of all of his books is like radically different. Yeah. Mm. Like a Western then French Exit is about like a, a wealthy socialite running out of money. Uh, yeah. That sounds great. Did you read, um, I, my favorite one was Under Major Domo. Yep. Which is like um, a fantasy novel about yeah. a duke of mental illness. <laughs> it's really good. It's like gourmet. <laughs> really, really, really great. Really great. Yeah. Um, um, he did, I read his novella as well, which is like a bit like Fight Club. So again, quite different. <laughs> Well, Patrick DeWitt fan club we're starting. Lovely St. Patrick DeWitt. Okay. Okay. So we do a French exit then, even yeah. if someone watches the movie. Yes. I think, I mean, it sounds a little Woody Allen, the pre premise of the film, but. Nope, I'm out. 